There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, and welcome to The Other Half. Episode 1.6, Livia Drusilla, Murderous Machiavellian Matriarch? Sometimes Patreon supporters are a bit like London buses. Some weeks there are no new ones, other times there are loads. And I am very pleased to say that this week has been a bumper one for new supporters. So, without further ado, I would like to thank my newly minted patrons, Kay, Megan, Suzanne, Claire, Amanda, Margaret and Stephanie. I would also like to thank an existing patron, Emily, who upped her existing patronage. To all of you amazing ladies, your generosity and appreciation means a great deal to me and allows me to keep this thing going. I feel kind of dirty asking for more patronage after so many of you signed up this week, but if you would like to support the show, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. Remember that you can find out news from the show on the Facebook page and get more info about it on the website, that address theotherhalfpodcast.co.uk. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. She tricked you into coming into her room so she could falsely accuse you of rape? And for what reason? Well, tell me! Ask her. Perhaps she knows. I'm asking you! He'll incriminate us all before he's done. She hates me, and you're so blind you can't see it! Hate you? What do you mean, hate you? She hates me, and she hated my brothers and my mother. She hates anyone who might come between you and her precious son. Grandfather, open your eyes. Throw off the blinkers. For years, everyone around you has either died or disappeared. Do you think it was all an accident? My father, Agrippa, and before him, Marcellus. My brothers, Gaius and Lucius, my mother, Julia, now me. Why can't you see she's clearing a path for herself? And that other son of hers, Drusus. Ask her how he died. There was nothing wrong with him till she sent her personal physician to treat him. I have held out for six episodes, but I couldn't leave I Claudius out forever now, could I? That impassioned speech comes from episode three from the brilliant BBC adaptation of the Robert Graves novels, 
and sees Agrippa Postumus, the heir presumptive to Augustus, defending himself from accusations of rape. In the show, Livia had conspired with her granddaughter Lavilla to set up Postumus and his political career and probably life in jeopardy, he goes all in, accusing Livia of having essentially murdered or exiled anyone who might have blocked Tiberius's way to the imperial throne. And yet, Augustus did not believe him. Almost everyone knew what Livia was doing, except him. This view of the arch-evil stepmother Livia is present in much of the sources and popular representations of Rome's first empress, though not quite to the extent that Robert Graves goes to. I've already talked about it quite a lot, and now it's time to talk about it in detail. But before we get into all that, it's important to get into just who was the imperial family at this time. Now, pay attention, because this is important. So, first of all, we have the children of Livia from a previous marriage, Tiberius and Drusus. Then, there was Julia, the daughter of Augustus and his previous wife. Then, there was Octavia, the emperor's sister. She had a bunch of kids, but the two most important for us at this stage were Marcellus and Antonia. Finally, there was Marcus Agrippa, Augustus's best friend and general of his armies. At the start of Augustus' reign, he had only one child note, Vipsania, who, if you remember from two episodes back, was married to Tiberius. Okay, got all that? Great, because they are all about to have children who will all marry each other or themselves. Really, the Julio-Claudian family were the Habsburgs of their day. One thing that I never really talked about much in the early episodes of this series was how sickly a man Augustus was. His early military career had been constantly hampered by a series of illnesses, and so while we know that he would go on and reign as emperor for over 40 years, no one knew that at the time. Right from the start, it was considered quite possible that Augustus could die young, and so securing the succession and choosing the right man to lead Rome forward was an issue throughout his reign. The early frontrunners in the succession stakes were Tiberius and Marcellus. They were at the same age, of fairly equal rank, one the stepson of the emperor, the other the nephew, and had been honoured similarly in terms of patronage. But, in the eyes of Augustus and much of the Roman establishment, there was a clear favourite. According to Velius Paterculus, quote, People thought that, if anything should happen to Caesar, Marcellus would be his successor in power. He was, we are told, a young man of noble qualities, cheerful in mind and disposition, and equal to the station for which he was being reared. Meanwhile, Tiberius is often described in very different terms. Suetonius, in his biography of the man, talks of a strong, stern, powerful young man, but also a fairly quiet one, preferring his own company, and thought of as arrogant by many in the Senate, though, for the moment, Augustus did defend him to the body. That said, it was clear that Augustus favoured Marcellus, and so he married the 17-year-old to his 14-year-old daughter, Julia. But this was not to last. Two years later, in 23 BCE, a terrible wave of fever swept through Rome. Augustus himself was almost taken away, and Livia reportedly spent days by his bedside, nursing him back to health. But Marcellus was not so lucky. Aged only 20, he fell ill suddenly and died. His mother Octavia took the news terribly badly. 
she shut herself away from the world and forbade any mention of her dead son in her presence. According to Seneca, quote, Throughout her entire life, she never ceased to weep and sigh, concentrating on one thing alone, with her whole mind fixed on it, regarding any cessation in weeping as a second bereavement. She hated all mothers and raged against Livia with a special fury, because it seemed as though the brilliant prospect once in store for her own child was now transferred to Livia's son. Seneca here is not accusing Livia of having anything to do with Marcellus's death. He's actually just trying to make a point about how annoying whiny women can be, in his own delightful manner. But others did point the finger at the empress. How convenient that her son's main rival to the succession, a young man, a virile Roman man at that, should just happen to drop dead? Poison, they cried. Poison! But this seems to have been a fairly contained cry. The only historian to even mention it is Cassius Dio, who, rather uncharacteristically, actually comes to Livia's defence. Quote, Livia, now, was accused of having caused the death of Marcellus, because he had been preferred before her sons. But the justice of this suspicion became a matter of controversy by reason of the character both of that year and of the year following, which proved so unhealthful that great numbers perished during them. Basically, given the number of people dropping dead from the plague hitting Rome, it isn't that surprising that Marcellus should die. Even if it was a little convenient. Marcellus's death not only reopened the succession question, but it also left Julia without a husband. Whoever she married would instantly become one of the leading candidates to be the next emperor. If Augustus had chosen Tiberius, then that would have been a huge boon for him. But, instead, he chose his best friend, Marcus Agrippa, a man more than twice her age. He was seen as being a very safe pair of hands someone who could guide the empire through the tricky first succession and then hand it off to someone younger, hopefully a child of his marriage to Julia, as they would have the blood of Augustus flowing in their veins. Their union was indeed a productive one, producing five children, all of whom sadly are important, so you need to know their names. Actually, before I tell them to you, a quick thing on naming convention. Like many royal families, the Julio-Claudians tended to reuse the same names over and over again. Sometimes if two shared the same name, the elder would be called Major and the other Minor, just as today it is common to see people named Senior and Junior. That is why sometimes I have been calling Augustus' sister Octavia Minor. Okay, so back to the children. They were, in order of birth, Gaius, Julia Minor, Lucius... Agrippina Major, and Posthumus. Augustus immediately took a strong liking to the two eldest boys, Gaius and Lucius. And, in 13 BCE, when they had reached the respective ages of 7 and 4, he formally adopted them. This was basically a formal signal that he wished for them to succeed him, as it mirrored his own adoption by Julius Caesar all those years ago. Now, It seems that Livia's ambitions for her son Tiberius had, until this point, not necessarily been for him to take the crown. She certainly would have been disappointed that Marcellus had been favoured above him, but he was, after all, of imperial blood, and Tiberius was still a very young man. She probably recognised that Agrippa was a safe pair of hands in case her husband should die early. 
She also knew that she was not the dominant woman in the imperial household. In fact, she shared that with Octavia. But all this changed in four tragic years for the Julio-Claudian family. First, in 12 BCE, came the death of Marcus Agrippa, the heir apparent and closest friend and advisor to Augustus. Then, the following year, came his sister Octavia, who the sources portray as being pleased to be reunited in death with her son Marcellus. But the third death was the cruelest one, at least for Livia, as in 9 BCE, her youngest son Drusus died while on campaign in Germania. Her two sons were very close, serving together in the wars in Germania, as well as taking important positions in government. By all accounts, they were both very competent officers. Tiberius had a son with his wife Vipsania, while Drusus's marriage to Octavia's daughter Antonia produced three children who survived childbirth, Germanicus, Lavilla, and Claudius. Yes, that Claudius. With the pattern set for Julio-Claudians to marry other Julio-Claudians, it was very important that Livia's sons should produce children as well. This meant that, even if neither of them were to become emperor in the future, the title would remain in Livia's bloodline, and that was very important to her. The death of Drusus is somewhat controversial. The most likely explanation is that it was just an accident. He was thrown from his horse, the wound got infected, or he contracted some other illness, and he died. However, interestingly, we know that he wrote a letter to Tiberius shortly before he died, expressing his dissatisfaction with the autocratic rule of Augustus, and stating that he would like Rome to become a republic again. This has meant that some sources, Tacitus and Suetonius included, suggest that there was some foul play at work, with the blame being placed at the feet of Augustus. Of course, I, Claudius, blames Livia, but this is not something of which she is accused of in the sources. Indeed, Livia, as one might suspect, took the news of her son's death very badly. Indeed, this was the only time in her life that the poker face that she usually adopted in public fell. She and Augustus travelled up to Germania to pick up his body, and along with Tiberius, who had raced across Europe to be with his brother on his deathbed, led a tearful funeral procession back to Rome. Both then and now, comparisons were often drawn between the responses of Livia and Octavia after the deaths of their respective sons. Remember that Octavia plunged into hysterical mourning, never recovering from the news of the death of Marcellus. Livia, on the other hand, adopted a far more measured and dignified posture. Seneca states that, quote, She did not cease to make frequent mention of the name of her Drusus, to set up his portrait in all places, both public and private, and to speak of him and listen while others spoke of him with the greatest pleasure. She lived with his memory, which none can embrace and consort with, who has made it painful to himself. He then goes on to state that she sought the advice of a Greek friend of hers, who suggested that, rather than reacting in the way that Octavia had, she should show, quote, a milder and better regulated spirit, and that if she did so, quote, you will not be in misery, nor will you wear your life out with suffering. Plague on it! What madness this is to punish oneself because one is unfortunate, and not to lessen, but increase one's ills. You ought to display, in this matter also, that decent behaviour and modesty which has characterised all your life, for there is such a thing as self-restraint and grief also. You will show more respect for the youth himself, 
who well deserves that it should make you glad to speak and think of him, if you make him able to meet his mother with a cheerful countenance, even as he was wont to do when alive. This dignified and restrained image of Livia is one that frequently comes up in the sources, and I think exemplifies her very well. She was not an emotional woman, and was always thinking about how her behaviour in public would be seen, and how that should be used for advantage. Unlike many of the men and women around her, she was not prone to wild and reckless behaviour. She was measured and calm, even after the death of her much-loved son. These three deaths in quick succession meant big changes for Livia. The former two, Octavia and Agrippa, were big blows for her husband. In two fell strokes, he had lost his closest friend and advisor and the only blood relation left of his generation. He depended so much on having talented people around him, and now two big pillars of his council were gone. For Livia, though, while she publicly mourned her deaths, they provided her with an enormous opportunity. Suddenly, the positions of Mater Familius and closest confidant of Augustus had opened up, and she eagerly stepped up to the plate. The death of Drusus was not only a personal tragedy, but it was also not great politically. She wanted her sons to rise to the top. There was nothing to suggest that, if everything had worked out perfectly, they could not have shared power. The rules of imperial government were still being made, and indeed co-emperors wouldn't rule the empire in the future, with mixed success. What the death of Drusus did was narrow her focus to just one son, Tiberius. All her hopes, all her ambitions, were now tied up in her one remaining son. His future was all she cared about now. For the moment, though, Tiberius was once again not the front-runner in the succession stakes. Augustus still wished to keep the throne within his own bloodline, the Julian side of the Julio-Claudian family. And so, after the death of Marcellus, his attention switched to the children of his daughter Julia, specifically Gaius and Lucius. But, in 9 BCE, which is where we are now, Gaius was around 11 years old, and Lucius only 8. This was no age to inherit an imperial system that was still being built, and so there was still an opening for a stopgap, and Tiberius, over 20 years older than the two boys, seemed just the man for the job. But for that to occur, he needed to be aligned fully into the Julian part of the family, and there was only one way to do that. Marry... Julia. But before we get into that, I want to talk briefly about Augustus's new laws concerning marriage and morality, because they are about to become very important to our story. Augustus was an excellent politician, and he rarely made missteps, especially after the defeat of Antony. But he did have a vice, and that was a fixation with what he saw as the declining quality of Roman morality and family values. He was worried that not enough children were being born to the aristocracy, and he blamed this on the fact that people were not getting married early enough, and when they did, they didn't sleep with each other enough, and instead conducted numerous affairs. Augustus held his daughter Julia up as his example of moral probity, as she had been married for most of her life and produced a number of children. Those of you who have read ahead will know that this decision won't turn out well for either father or daughter. What resulted were the Julian laws on marriage between 17 and 18 BCE. They took a carrot and stick approach to the quote-unquote problem. The centrepiece of these laws was the one that criminalised adultery, 
and as you may guess, the punishments for this were not equal across the sexes. Wives broke the law if they slept with any man other than their husband, while men were only considered criminals if they slept with a married woman. If a woman was caught in the act, as it were, then they and their lover could be legally killed by her father, and her husband was obliged to immediately divorce her. The woman would then face the courts, with exile being the harshest punishment. Furthermore, restrictions were placed on marrying outside of your class, and divorced or widowed women between 20 and 50 were required by law to remarry within a six-month and year period, respectively. But there were incentives as well. Economic and social incentives were offered to people who were married and had children. Women, who had three children or more, gained a measure of emancipation, meaning that they no longer were under the strict legal control of their father or husband. Did this work? No, not at all. Patrician Romans did not, in general, want to go through the embarrassment and cost of going to trial if they found their spouse cheating, and, without an effective police force, it was hard to prove if neither side wished to admit it. It was deeply unpopular amongst everyone, but Augustus saw it as one of his greatest successes. He looked at his own marriage and those of his family and saw nothing but good Romans living up to good old-fashioned values. Of course, no one exemplified it better than his own wife, Livia, whose modesty, loyalty and steadfast fidelity could never be questioned. Okay, back to Julia and Tiberius. There are a number of reasons why this marriage was a terrible idea, but really there is one key one. Neither of them wanted to have another marriage. To deal with these points in turn, Julia, under the terms of those laws that I read earlier, was now technically freed from paternal coercion with relation to marriage, as she had already given birth to more than three children. Indeed, at the time of the death of Agrippa, she was pregnant for the fifth time. She had no need for another husband, as remarrying would restrict her freedom and position rather than enhancing them. As for Tiberius, while he would have recognised that marrying Julia would increase his chances of succeeding Augustus, he still didn't want to do it for two key reasons. First, it's a simple fact that he was already married. He and Vipsani were apparently devoted to each other. This was not a sham marriage like so many others at the time. He had absolutely no wish to divorce his beloved wife. And second, he really, really, really did not want to marry Julia. Suetonius explains the situation well. Quote, After you acknowledged a son from her, though she was thoroughly congenial and was a second time with child, he was forced to divorce Vipsania and to contract a hurried marriage with Julia, daughter of Augustus. This caused him no little distress of mind, for he was living happily with Vipsania and disapproved of Julia's character, having perceived that she had a passion for him even during the lifetime of her former husband as was in fact the general opinion. But even after the divorce, he regretted his separation from Vitsania, and the only time that he chanced to see her, he followed her with such an intent and tearful gaze that care was taken that she should never again come before his eyes. Moreover, Julia was currently both his stepsister and mother-in-law, which even then was a bit... ew... In terms of who it was that made this marriage come about, the sources are irritatingly quiet, but they seem to agree that it was Augustus that pushed it through for the reasons that I outlined earlier. He needed a successor in place should he die suddenly. It is important to say, though, that he wasn't overtly declaring Tiberius as his heir with this announcement. 
He was merely putting him in a position to do that, should things not shake out as he intended. It is well known that while Augustus respected Tiberius as a soldier and an administrator, they did not get on personally. Like most people, Augustus found his stepson to be uncharismatic and cold, not really imperial material. Despite the lack of direct evidence to support it, there is a tradition that that states that the real power behind this move was actually Livia. This seems to come from the reputation that Livia got later in life as the pushy-slash-evil matriarch in support of her son, and a quoted Cassius Dio that states that Augustus made the decision to marry the two, quote, with some reluctance. Now, I find it impossible to believe that Livia did not have at least a hand in this decision. Julia was unquestionably the most eligible bachelorette in the empire, and so marrying her son to her was a no-brainer. As for Vipsania, she had never been Livia's choice as a wife for her son, and in any event, the advantage gained from the match had ended with the death of Agrippa. Livia herself had divorced her previous husband while pregnant in order to marry a more powerful one. She was only asking her son to do the same thing that she had. Everything that we know about Livia points to her having a hand in this match. The question, I guess, is how much persuading did Augustus need? The fact is that Tiberius was very much the obvious man to marry Julia. And there is an argument that, with rumours circulating of his daughter's, shall we say, loose morals, there was a need for her to be tied down by marriage. But then again, if he really did not particularly want Tiberius to succeed him, and the evidence suggests that he did not, that this was a risky match for him. I think there is a strong case to be made that Livia, at the very least, gave him a strong push that helped Augustus over the line with this decision. It seems that both Julia and Tiberius made at least a go of trying to make their marriage work, but it all fell apart pretty quickly. According to Suetonius, quote, With Julia he lived in harmony at first and returned her love, but he soon grew cold and went so far as to cease to live with her at all after the severing of the tie formed by a child which was born to them, but died at Aquileia in infancy. Tacitus claims that Julia equally had no love for Tiberius, saying that, quote, she had despised him as her inferior. Clearly, any affection that there was between them, if indeed there had ever been any, was gone. Whether motivated by grief at the loss of his child, bitterness at having to divorce the woman he loved, resentment at having to marry a woman he didn't much like, a lack of desire to succeed Augustus, or a realisation that, with the favouring of Gaius and Lucius, he never would, maybe even fear that he may be in danger from the two adopted sons of Augustus, or potentially some combination of all of these. In 6 BCE, Tiberius made what can only be described as a bold move. Defying his mother and stepfather, he rejected a plush military assignment to Armenia, and instead requested that he be allowed to retire from the world and settle on the Greek island of Rhodes. Unsurprisingly, his decision was not supported by either Livia or Augustus. Suetonius explains that his reasoning was thus, quote, At the flood tide of success, though in the prime of life and health, he suddenly decided to go into retirement and to withdraw as far as possible from the centre of the stage. He would not give way either to his mother's urgent entreaties or to complaint which his stepfather openly made in the Senate that he was being forsaken. 
On the contrary, when they made more strenuous efforts to detain him, he refused to take food for four days. This was an absolute, unmitigated disaster for Livia. Tiberius was, after the death of Drusus, her only surviving son. And while she had grandchildren, their prospects may well have been tainted by her son's treachery. As this was how his exile was perceived. It also put her in a very difficult position, as it forced her to try and bring together a son, who did not want to return, and a husband, who, after a few entreaties for him to return, soon became content with seeing him rot on his Greek island. To an extent, it also hurt her own image, as Tiberius, by abandoning his family, was going against the spirit of Augustus's moral reforms. Such things had a habit of reflecting on all members of the family. But... Tiberius wasn't the only one who was blackening the Julio-Claudian good name. Now, I have referenced Julia's reputation for being a bit of a floozy a few times already, but let's talk a little more about it. Frankly, I would like to talk about it a lot, as it is frankly fascinating, but sadly this episode is about Livia and not Julia. In short, and to generalise, Julia was the absolute polar opposite of Livia. Where Livia conducted herself soberly and dressed conservatively, Julia was flirtatious and provocatively dressed at all times. She would put herself in situations where gossip was bound to take hold, and was rebuked by her father on more than one occasion. But things went further than that, as it was an open secret to everyone except her father that she slept around quite a bit, and there were doubts about the paternity of some of her kids that she had with Agrippa. In short, she was hardly living up to being the poster child of Roman female virtue that Augustus had held her up to being during his marital and moral reforms. Indeed, in an attempt to curb some of his daughter's excesses, Augustus tried in vain to get her to be just a little more like Livia, writing that he had seen the two of them at the games, but while Livia was in the company of distinguished middle-aged senators... Julia was surrounded by single, attractive young men. She did not take kindly to this. She had no intention of being anything like her stiff stepmother-come-mother-in-law. She also, apparently, retorted to a friend, channeling her inner rich-kid teenage brat, quote, He forgets that he is Caesar, but I remember that I am Caesar's daughter. It seems that her behaviour only got more flagrant after Tiberius abandoned her. Everyone in Rome, it seems, knew about Julia's affairs, her blatant disdain for her father's moral laws and values. Valius Particulus sums up the moral indignation of many at the time. He wrote that Julia, quote, "...left untried no disgraceful deed, untainted with either extravagance or lust of which a woman could be guilty, either as the doer or as the object." and was in the habit of measuring the magnitude of her fortune only in terms of licence to sin, setting up her own caprice as a law unto itself. Now, there is little doubting that she was guilty of breaking her father's laws, but some of the accusations seem a little over the top. For example, Seneca claims that, quote, Turning from adultery to prostitution, she had stationed herself at the statue of Marases, seeking gratification of every kind in the arms of casual lovers. Now, this seems a little far-fetched. Julia was a very proud woman. It is unlikely that she would have conducted herself in such a way. 
Her affairs, it seems, were mostly confined to the upper crust of society and not conducted in a public place. When Augustus was finally informed of his daughter's activities, the sources state that he first reacted with disbelief and then furious anger. He banished Julia to a tiny island, just over a square mile in size. No men were allowed there, and she was also forbidden from drinking wine, basically forcing her to live by his prescribed moral code, if only by denying her all of her vices. Now, you will be shocked, shocked to hear that Livia has been linked with the fall of Julia. Unlike in other situations where Livia was accused of facilitating the death or downfall of someone in her way, there is no suggestion here that she fabricated the whole thing. But there are definitely identifiable advantages for Livia in Julia's fall. The first was to protect her husband. Julia's flagrant breaking of his laws was a profound embarrassment for Augustus, even if he didn't know everything that had been going on. Indeed, such a public ridicule went beyond mere embarrassment, as it could be highly dangerous to the regime. Augustus' position owed much prestige. Power, after all, exists in where people decide it lies. If he became a figure of fun, it would be far harder for him to exert power in the same way as he had for the first two decades of his rulership. The second was to protect and promote Tiberius. If one believes the theory that hatred of Julia was the principal reason for his self-imposed exile on Rose, a decision, of course, that Livia had fervently opposed, the removing her from the scene would allow Tiberius to return. It's as simple as that. Now, there is strong evidence that Tiberius truly loathed Julia, the best being that when he became emperor, he basically starved her to death. So there is logic to this position. Livia equally had no particular love for Julia. She'd only ever seen her stepdaughter as a political asset, and given her single-minded focus on her son's career, this argument has some merit. But it was still really risky. Her husband's fury at the discovery of his daughter's behaviour could easily have been turned on other targets. What if he blamed Tiberius for his daughter's fall into infamy? Equally, there was no guarantee that Julia's fall would lead to Tiberius wanting to come back, or that Augustus would take him back. Finally, there is the argument that Livia did it simply for her own reason. Julia, it seems, had great disdain for the Claudian family. She was also close to her own mother, and likely was not thrilled about how Livia had come to be married to her father. And as I said previously, Livia would not have approved of Julia's behaviour either, as she was at heart a deeply conservative woman. And finally, if you want to believe the evil Livia theory... There is also the fact that clearing Julia out of the way would not just possibly allow Tiberius to return, it would also enrich them both. Augustus did not simply banish his daughter, he also stripped her of all her possessions and inheritance. And who would end up with it, would you ask? Yep, Tiberius and Livia, though that was still a little ways off. What do I think? Frankly, I find all of these, especially the first two reasons, plausible. Livia was desperate for Tiberius to return, as we shall see, and so I think it is entirely likely that she would have shed no tears for Julia's downfall. I find it hard to believe that Tiberius could ever have returned while Julia remained. There was too much bad blood on both sides. Livia was a considered actor. She was not prone to rash or overtly risky choices, but bringing down Julia would not have been that hard. Too many people knew what she was up to, and it was only fear of her father that had kept them quiet for so long. 
The one counter-argument is that the sources are completely quiet on this. None of them blame Livia for Julia's fall, but that might simply be because they don't want to credit her with bringing down someone whom they deem to be bad as well. Okay, let's take stock for just a moment. Tiberius went into exile in 6 BCE. Julia fell two years later, and with that came divorce. Augustus insisted upon it. The hopes for the succession still lay on the shoulders of Julia's two sons, Gaius and Lucius, who had both been adopted by Augustus a few years before. Tiberius's hopes, if indeed he actually held them, of becoming emperor were basically nil. There was no chance that Augustus would choose him now, even as a stopgap. And in front of him, at the very least, were two healthy and popular teenagers. At this point then, unless you truly believe in the evil Livia theory, where even now she is plotting the demise of her step-grandchildren, her hopes for Tiberius were not necessarily that he may become emperor. She simply wanted him back. Who knows what might happen in the future? but he had to be in Rome if he wanted to progress. While both he and Augustus were implacable, her prospects were bleak, but eventually Tiberius started to agitate for a return. Livia, of course, fervently argued his case to her husband. It was hard work. Augustus was not known for being a particularly forgiven man, especially to members of his own family whom he believed had betrayed him. But Livia was a very persuasive person. She started small, she managed to secure for Tiberius first an ambassadorial position. She didn't badger her husband too hard, she knew him too well for that. But she kept gently bringing it up. And then finally, with the help of Gaius, she managed to get him home in 2 CE. Now this was no small achievement. Augustus had failed to forgive his own daughter after she had transgressed, albeit in a far more humiliating way. And this had been someone whom he had always loved. There is no evidence that Augustus had ever held any real affection for Tiberius, and now it seemed that he disliked him totally, and deemed him completely unsuitable to be his successor. For Livia to win Tiberius' reprieve, albeit with some help, is pretty impressive. And her timing could hardly have been better, as events were about to throw yet another spanner in the works, once again ruining Augustus' plans for the succession. Shortly before Tiberius' return, Lucius, the younger of Augustus' adopted sons, fell ill and died in Gaul while on the way to join up with the army in Iberia. He was 19. Two years later, in 4 CE, total disaster struck, when the last remaining heir, Gaius, was wounded while on campaign in Armenia, and shortly thereafter died as well. He was 24. The highly convenient deaths of the last remaining obstacles to her son's path to the top have struck historians, both ancient and modern, as being rather suspicious. These were two young men in the prime of their lives, dying really close together. Remember, Livia by now is in her 60s, and though we know she still had decades left in her, no one knew that at the time. Maybe she had to accelerate her plans if she ever wished to see her son rule. Tacitus speculates that, quote, Untimely fate, or the treachery of their stepmother Livia, cut off both Lucius and Gaius Caesar. And Cassius Dio wrote that, quote, In connection with both deaths, therefore, suspicion attached to Livia, and particularly because it was just at this time that Tiberius returned to Rome from Rhodes. Sadly, though, neither of them offer anything in the way of details on this, 
and it seems a little difficult to see how she could have engineered these deaths, as both occurred far from her sphere of influence. There are really only two ways that she could have brought them about. The first is poison, but at such a distance I think we can safely rule this out as impractical. The other is by the way of paid assassination, but again I think this is unlikely. She could conceivably have arranged to have Lucius murdered on the road in Gaul, and then covered it up. But the risks involved in that were enormous. Imagine if the assassin had been caught and blabbed. Plus, killing the younger heir first makes no sense. One thing that we know about Livia is how careful and considered she was. It just doesn't make sense for her to have taken such a risk. As for the death of Gaius... The wounds that he received on the battlefield were well documented. That wasn't something that she could have set up herself. She wasn't all powerful. Maybe she could have finished him off on his deathbed as a purely opportunistic bit of evil doing. But the sources suggest that Gaius had already decided that his disfigurement precluded him from a public career. When you add to this the fact that both Cassius Dio and Tastus lobbed these accusations at Livia, they offer no detail at all. As with most things, we cannot completely rule out the notion that Livia had a hand in their deaths. She had the motive after all, but I just think that it's so unlikely that it can be safely discarded as simply a malicious rumour. But all that said, in the year 4 CE, after 30 years as Empress of Rome, Livia had finally got what she had wanted. Her son was in line for a big job. The biggest job there was... It had taken a lot of work to get there. Much cajoling, persuading, influencing, nudging, and maybe even some outright begging. She had had to deal with a stubborn and proud son, and an even stubborner and prouder husband. She and Tiberius had managed to outlast every other heir that Augustus had had lined up, from Marcellus and Agrippa to Gaius and Lucius. But all was not yet won, because Tiberius was still not yet the heir, and there were still other people about who could move ahead of him. Next week, we shall see Tiberius finally become an acknowledged heir of Augustus, and eventually succeed him as emperor. But would he be grateful to the woman who had helped place him on the throne? Of course not. This is Tiberius that we're talking about. Fact: A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. 
seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.